Welcome to the Avad Podcast. I'm Jasmine Lilly. Perhaps you'll recall my conversation with Zach Domes and Ellie Wildhagen of Kindred Wedding Photography. If you haven't listened to their episode titled This Glorious Mess, I strongly encourage you to do so immediately as it is one of my very favorites. During my correspondence with Ellie and Zach leading up to our conversation, they offered to introduce me to a friend of theirs named Nate Badgley. Nate is exploring the topic of love in his own podcast, The Loveumentary. By interviewing couples about what makes their relationships work, what makes their love unique and revolutionary, Nate speaks with people who have dialed into that certain something the rest of us are eagerly trying to recreate. I think most people in their life have, they know of at least one couple that they truly admire. There's one, there's one couple in their life that they look at and they go, man, if I could have a marriage like anybody's, it would be these people. Nate himself is newly married and navigating the complexities of opposing communication styles. She's introverted, and when she gets stressed out, she needs some time to process and breathe and collect her thoughts. And as an extrovert, I process my stress by wanting to talk about it and like get it out in the open and, and have a conversation. He described to me his theories on making romantic love last. Romantic love it does not come to human beings intuitively. It's not something that you're programmed with. As a matter of fact, the things that you're programmed with are counterintuitive. They're like the, the opposite of what makes romantic love work. To have a successful, like a genuinely successful relationship, you have to oftentimes act against what your instincts are telling you to do. And why he's waged his own personal war on what he has dubbed mediocre love. Uh, to me, mediocre love is the type of relationship that you inherit from your parents. Um, it's the it's the 50% divorce rate love. It's the kind of love where women talk about their men as if about their husbands as if they're um, children that they have to take care of, and men talk about their wives as if they're like the ball and chain or some like glorified babysitter who restricts their privileges and makes it so they can't have fun anymore. All that and more on this episode of Avowed. How did you get started with the Loveumentary? Well, it kind of started with a nagging question um, or a problem that I really wanted to solve. And it was part personal and part societal. The personal side of the problem was that I was dating a lot and wanted to obviously one day, I guess not obviously, some people don't want the same thing that I do. Um, 
but my my hope was to one day get married, you know, find the woman of my dreams, settle down and have a, a family and be an amazing husband and father. And it just seemed like all of my relationships were failing just over and over and over again. And that the fact that they failed and me, the fact that I was a part of them were the two things that were kind of the common thread in all of these relationships. So I figured if the failure was going to stop, I had to figure out what I was doing wrong. And for several years, I'd had this idea in the back of my head to um, to sit down with couples that I really admired and try and figure out what it is that that they did differently in their relationship that set their marriage or their relationship apart from everybody else's. Um, like there's got to be something that these people that are so extraordinary and so fun to be around and so happy and so obviously in love, there's got to be something that they're doing that everybody else is missing out on. And I wanted to identify what that thing or those things were. So um, I had this, this idea for this project and I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And then one day I just realized like it's now or never. Wow. So uh, I quit my job and decided to just go on a crazy journey and um, traveled all over the country and spent my life savings. And um, yeah, and it's been an amazing experience. I, I did a Kickstarter and went on a road trip with a, co-host for a couple of months. And, um, so I've been all over the United States and I've talked to couples who are rich and poor and gay and straight and religious and non-religious. I've talked to polygamous families. I've talked to people who've been in arranged marriages, like every, I tried to just find anybody in every, from any demographic I could find who had what they would claim to be extraordinary love because I just wanted to figure out what, what the, these characteristics were that set them apart. And how did you find those people? Uh, most of it was just asking. Um, I think most people in their life have, they know of at least one couple that they truly admire. There's one, there's one couple in their life that they look at and they go, man, if I could have a marriage like anybody's, it would be these people. Which I'd show up in a city and ask around, ask some friends and friends of friends, and eventually a couple would manifest themselves that was uh, comfortable talking and having the conversation recorded, and we'd go for it. And uh, sometimes the the conversations were just good, but oftentimes they were incredible. And I walked away kind of like floating on clouds, just thinking, man, I would... I had no idea a relationship could look like that. Like I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know love could be that. And I've, I've taken notes and walked away thinking I'm going to steal that aspect of that relationship and this thing from this couple. And I'm going to apply all these little nuances and cool things that from all these amazing couples to my own, my own marriage. So. Yeah. That's actually how I felt after talking with Ellie and Zach. I felt like I was high. It was such, it's such a, a great feeling. It is. And it's so cool. Um, and I guess if I had really intellectualized it, I would have expected that this would be the case, but um, I didn't expect going into this podcast, how incredible it was going to feel to be meeting these people, but not actually meeting them and then diving into these really intense conversations. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, like most of the conversations that are on the podcast are with people that don't live where I live. And so we've never actually physically met. And then I'm on the phone with them and we're going to like some really vulnerable territory and yeah. people are ready to open up. People want to open up. It's really 
pretty fantastic and mind-blowing. It's a strange feeling to meet somebody and talk to them for an hour or two and walk away and realizing that you probably know more about them than some of their closest friends. Yeah, because we just don't ask each other those questions in a day-to-day life. Totally. They're not available to us, and it and it feels, I don't know, it feels... Um, it feels weird to ask your friends those really intimate questions. Yeah. And on the surface, it would seem even stranger for somebody that doesn't know you to ask those questions. But there is something about that unbiased observer or like outside third party perspective that kind of wipes the slate clean and allows us to ask the hard questions and answer them intuitively and honestly without being concerned about whether or not we're, you know, rocking the boat or pissing somebody off or saying something, you know, that's going to upset anybody. Totally. So are you in a relationship now? I am. I'm married. I just got married about seven months ago. Whoa, congratulations. Thank you. How did you meet your lady? That's a great question. We went to the same church, um, and they it was a church for young single adults. So single people between the ages of like 19 and 32, 33. So it was a congregation of like three, 300, I would say. And they do this every year in the summertime, they do this huge camp out where they get other congregations that are um, also have young single adults in them. And they all go up to this huge campground and there's like 2000 people up there and they have a dance and um, like big barbecues and they go out on the lake and it's just kind of this huge party. And, uh, I was on the dance floor and she, I, I recognized her. We had similar friends and she winked at me and it was very, she's very introverted and it, it was very out of character. I never would have really considered going after somebody like her because I'm a very extroverted person. And, um, I didn't think she'd, I think I'd just make her really uncomfortable. Any interaction I'd had with her beforehand, she'd kind of made that implication that I made her feel a little uncomfortable, but, um, so yeah, she winked at me on the dance floor and I was like, this is a girl I could totally see myself with. So I started kind of pursuing her and she friend zoned me pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I, I was a pretty safe guy at a friend zone and I took it kind of as a challenge and we hung out as friends for a couple months. And then I asked her on a casual harmless date and we had a lot of fun. And so I asked her out again and we kept dating and, um, uh, eventually, it just got to the point where we were having a conversation and it's like, so what are we going to do? And I said, Oh, maybe we should just get married. And she goes, okay. And I was like, Oh, I was kind of just kidding, but, <laughs> uh, if you're up for it, I'm up for it. And it's kind of moved forward from there. Wow. Yeah. So this was post love you mentory exploration. So how did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did that experience and your discoveries in, that exploration um, influence the decision that you made and, and the relationship that you're forming? Another great question. Um, I would say a lot of people actually before before I got married while I was dating and had done so much of the levimentary, this, this whole journey, a lot of people assumed that, um, that my experiences would give me unrealistic expectations for love. Mm-hmm that I would be expecting something a lot more glamorous than what marriage really was. And I found the opposite to be true. 
I found that my expectations were much more realistic because the conversations that I was having with all of these couples were very authentic and they would open up to me about the trials that they faced and the struggles that they had and how everything's not always perfect and how love requires you to persevere and push through difficult circumstances. And I kind of came into uh, my marriage with that expectation, with the idea of, hey, this is not going to be always easy, but we can make it amazing. And um, so the dating process was great, and marriage has been an adventure. Um, I think for me, I have never been really surprised that we had struggles. What I have been surprised with is how every couple struggles are different, different, including ours. Mm-hmm. So like, so for example, my biggest struggle right now um, that I'm bumping up against is what I would refer to as self-soothing. Mm-hmm. So I put, I put a lot of pressure on me and probably on my wife as well to be perfect. I think it's just part of how I was raised and then also part of wanting to be this relationship expert. And so having that expert status would imply that you're an expert at the thing that you claim to be, that your, that your actions can back up your knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a therapist, um, <laughs> having their shit together. <laughs> exactly. Like it would be weird to go to a marriage and family therapist who's been divorced three times. Mm-hmm. So i I just felt this pressure to have everything be, be perfect. And, uh, my wife sometimes has anxiety. She just gets, you know, worried about things like most people do and get stressed out about things. And she's introverted. And when she gets stressed out, she needs some time to process and breathe and collect her thoughts. And as an extrovert, I process my stress by wanting to talk about it and like get it out in the open and and have a conversation. And so what I found is that when she has a bad day or when she, she gets stressed out or when she gets anxious, um, my instinct is to uh, basically pick at her and try and figure out what's wrong and try and talk about it, which often ends up making it worse. And then she feels guilty for not being able to talk about it or for it not for it getting worse, which makes the anxiety, frustration, upset even worse. And it turns into this really negative spiral. And so I'm learning to when she has a rough day, be able to take a deep breath and think, okay, Nate, not everything is about you. Just because she's having a bad day or just because this thing upset her doesn't mean that it's your fault and you have to fix it right now and that you need to talk about it and that you need to fix her. Like you need to take a deep breath and settle in and just be okay being a little uncomfortable and don't make it worse. Yeah, That's a really hard thing for me to do. And it's requiring me to be really self-aware and, um, we talk about it all the time. Uh, and it's just a struggle that I'd never heard any other couple having. I'm sure they do. I'm sure there are plenty of couples who have that, but, um, that's, that's something that I bump up against on a pretty regular basis is wanting to fix everything and wanting everything to be wonderful. And sometimes it's just not, and I need to learn to be okay with that. And I feel like when I learn to be okay with that, it gets better much more quickly. I find it's actually really interesting that you hadn't bumped into that because that's something that I've struggled with. Um, and it, it's funny hearing you say this, um, not to like, you know, gender everybody, but I feel like what you're describing is what I hear from women in relationships more often than men. Um, like women trying to understand why their partner is silent or why they're having a hard day. And then men not 
being able to open up or feeling comfortable or capable (laughs) of expressing what's bothering them or giving them a hard time. And so it's really interesting to me to hear that, um, that the reverse is what you're experiencing, but I'm, I definitely relate to what you're talking about. And I've, you know, been with my partner for quite a long time and he's, he's expressive, but you know, to a point it's like, I remember early on in our relationship, especially, um, you know, he he was having a bad day or he was even just silent. And I would assume that it meant he was upset and I would, you know, project all of this, uh, insecurity onto him. And it was like, no, he's just chilling out. (laughs) Yeah. There's actually a lot of really interesting research behind this. There's, um, are you familiar with the Gottman Institute? Yeah. They talk about uh, negative sentiment override, which is when you kind of get in this mindset where any neutral interaction has a negative undertone to it. And so you start seeing things that you start inventing negative meanings for things that are either positive or neutral. Yeah. And uh, it, it like it can be I like to call it the poop colored glasses, <laughs> but um, it can it, that's one of the things that can poison a relationship faster than anything else is assuming the worst from your partner instead of assuming the best. Yeah. We, it's really easy to assume that your partner is misbehaving and that your partner is doing something that hurts you on purpose. When most people, 99% of people aren't going to hurt the person that they love on purpose. And it's just, it's amazing how quickly we go to worst case scenario. That's oh, true. they're, they're doing this to, to punish me. I, like they're trying to hurt me and it's just rarely if ever is that actually true. Yeah. And it's funny how often we default to that setting. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. In my experience, the hardest part about maintaining a healthy communicative long-term relationship is just figuring out how to navigate two different communication styles and um, you know, I'm pretty extroverted as well. And, um, you know, when I'm sad, upset, having a bad day, whatever, like, I want to talk about it. I want to work through it. I want to have the conversation and I want to, like, exercise the demons or whatever it is that's making me feel, you know, terrible or sad or whatever. Um, But not everybody wants to do that. Like, some people really process things in a totally different way. And, yeah, that I think is one of the biggest struggles in relationships is just figuring out how to navigate and uh, compromise those two needs. Totally. Have you ever taken the Enneagram personality test? The, sorry, the what personality test? Enneagram. It's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Nope. You should. But I'm um, looking it up now. Yeah, you would really enjoy it. It's um, basically there's nine personalities. And then um, when you figure out which number you are, you can also have a subtype. So like I'm an eight with a nine wing. And and there, in order to take the test, it's pretty simple. It's really like there's two um, two selections of three paragraphs each, and then you choose of the three in each section which one you respond to. So it's like between A, B, and C, and between X, Y, and Z. And then those two um, answers, those the two that resonate the most with you, uh, that gives you your number. And it's really incredibly accurate in my experience and also they do a really wonderful job of um it's a first of all it's a really old test and it's been adapted and changed and there's been a lot of books written on it but a lot of it is like 
how you behave when you're at your best and sort of what you revert to when you're going through a really difficult time or how you behave when you're experiencing anxiety. And um, I've, I've found that it's such an incredible tool for that self-awareness that we're talking about, like just understanding how you react so that you can better communicate to your partner what they can expect from you in that space. That's great. I'll have to check yeah. it out. Yeah, I think you would get a lot out of it. It's been it's been really helpful for me in understanding myself more than anything else and just being able to I like I've done I've done Myers Briggs and I've done a color code test and those are pretty interesting. That sounds cool too. Yeah, Enneagram is my favorite so far. Yeah. Um people use it a lot in the workplace and I mean all different kinds of situations and stuff. And yeah, it's it's a pretty fantastic test. Um and I have let's say the book that I have is the wisdom of the Enneagram and it's really comprehensive. So if you're going to buy a book, that's the one I would suggest. If you just want to do it virtually, the Enneagram Institute online and everything, and you can take the test for free. I would suggest taking a look at it because I think, you know, in terms of what you're talking about in your relationship with the self-soothing and everything, I bet that you would uncover some really interesting things about yourself. Very cool. In that. I'll totally check yeah. that out. So most of these couples that you're speaking with, it's just like word of mouth. Like, you know, somebody and they know somebody and so on and so forth. Yep. That's wild to me. I I feel like with the podcast, um, you know, finding guests, that has been some of how it's happened for me. But also I've had people reaching out to me and I'm, yeah, I was just really curious listening to your podcast, how you're finding all these people. Like if there was some kind of criteria for like, you have to have been together for a certain <laughs> period of time or something like that. I did have to modify my criteria from what it was at the beginning. Now I require people that I put on the podcast, unless there's a special circumstance to have been together for at least seven years. Mm. Um, I did. I interviewed a couple, a couple of younger couples who ended up breaking up, and just it was like it's not a huge deal because what they had to say was still really valid and wonderful. But um, it's also like I think it's wise to take advice from people who have lived the success. So. Yeah, and you have a project that you're working on. You mentioned called the first seven years. I assume it stems from that. Yeah. The. I mean, I think I told you, but the the. For first-time divorces, first divorces, 50% of them happen in the first seven years of marriage. Wow. So, and it's just, I my firm belief is that it's a lack of education. I hmm. think it's, it's a lack of skill development. I think um, there are, one of the things that I've taken away from doing the podcast and all of the research that I've done in the last several years is that romantic love it does not come to human beings intuitively it's not something that you're programmed with as a matter of fact the things that you're programmed with are counterintuitive they're like the the opposite of what makes romantic love work to have a successful like a genuinely successful relationship you have to oftentimes act against what your instincts are telling you to do and that requires a lot of practice and it requires a development of a certain number of skills. And my firm belief is that if we looked at romantic love as a skill that needs to be developed instead of just how we feel on any given day, um, we would see the quality of relationships improve dramatically. But we don't talk about love that way and we don't treat love that way. And then you get people who 
are going into marriage and they have no idea how to for self-soothe, for example, or manage their emotions or negotiate or apologize. And all of those things are vital skills to having a happy relationship. And then you have an abundance of people who are married and a lot are unhappy. And I think an even higher percentage are completely average, mediocre marriages, and they're oblivious to how mediocre they are. There's very few, there's not a whole lot of extraordinary relationships out there. And I think it's in large part due to lack of training and lack of access to mentors and good examples. And when you start to show people what's possible and what an amazing relationship looks like, it inspires them and they want to level up their game and they start getting curious and they want to know, how do I, how do I get that? How do I get to that point? Um, so I would love to see that conversation shift in our culture from, from romantic love being from something that's serendipitous that happens by chance to something that's more, um, skill based, I guess. Yeah. Intentional. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's something about the word romantic that feels so simple. And um, I don't know, I guess culturally, romantic love, as you're describing it, and as I think most people would um, think of it is really um, obvious and simple and um, harmonious and like the stars aligned and effortless, I guess is the word. And it's yeah. not like love, no. real love, extraordinary love, the kind that lasts for a lifetime or even 10 years or whatever takes work and it takes intention and self-awareness. And it isn't um, <laughs> it's not a walk in the park every day. And it's totally. I, I thought it was really interesting what you said about people assuming that, you know, working on the podcast and um, exploring extraordinary love, as you put it was going to give you like a unrealistic perception of love and how it actually had the opposite effect. And that makes perfect sense to me because I think extraordinary love is rife with difficulty and then problem solving and figuring out how to move through discomfort and make peace with it and, um, and embrace it and realize that it's just an inherent part of process and love and life and relationships. And I think the unrealistic expectations that they were assuming you were going to have are actually probably closer to the expectations that you had prior to this exploration, because those are the expectations that have been pounded into us by the media and Disney and uh, every single romantic comedy we've ever seen. It's yeah, it's unavoidable. I think we're all expecting that it's going to be, I don't know, the, the movies always ended like the perfect moment. Right. And then you're like, what's on the other side of that? Like what yeah. happened after must love dogs? Like where, where were these two people that had nothing in common, but met through like some random dating site because they love dogs. Like, and then, you know, right. cut fade to black with like some romantic music. And then I just have a hard time imagining that relationship lasted longer than a year max, you know? Yeah. We do a disservice to um, ourselves and each other when we only show that type of love because that, it's I don't think I don't think that it exists. I think like that's I a agree. that's a spurt love. Like that's a short spurt. The type that we see in the movies that's so consuming and overwhelming. Like a lot of really amazing relationships start off that way and you know, we call that the honeymoon period for a reason. Like it's not going to feel like that forever and to um p- yeah. p- put this idea in everyone's head that 
that a that's the norm and b that um you're always gonna feel that like crazy attraction and like consuming love like for the rest like of course you're gonna be disappointed (laughs) and that's it's it's the whole principle of oh there's just a big difference between a sprint and a marathon and what is it if you want to if you want to go fast you go alone if i don't know if that is even relevant if you want to go fast you go alone if you want to go um no, if you if you want to go far, you travel together. And I think that there's mm-hmm. something really special about the idea of a long, slow trek that gets you an incredible distance instead of just like a short 100-meter sprint. Yeah, absolutely. So you say um, in a lot of your content that you want to cure the world of mediocre love. And I'm curious when you say mediocre love, like what exactly does that look like to you? Uh, to me, mediocre love is the type of relationship that you inherit from your parents. Mm. Um, it's the, it's the 50% divorce rate love. It's the kind of love where women talk about their men as if about their husbands, as if they're, um, children that they have to take care of and men talk about their wives as if they're like the ball and chain or some like glorified babysitter who restricts their privileges and makes it so they can't have fun anymore. I think average love is um, accepting the societal norms that have been impressed upon you that you get married in your late 20s and early 30s and then you buy a house and you have babies and you just go through this pattern of life that's been created for you from previous generations and um, the overwhelming popular culture. I think uh, mediocre love is p- two people who have the same relationship at year five as they do at year 25 and then year 45, that they never um, expand or grow their capacity to be compassionate or be more understanding or be more adventurous or be uh, more patient or more forgiving. Um, people who are complacent to just accept that how things are are how they're always going to be and there's not a whole lot that we can do to change ourselves or impact change for our partner. Um, That to me is mediocre love. I think the dream for me is like one of the things that attracted me to my wife is that she is really just willing to do the work. She's willing to question is the way that things are right now the way that they have to be. Are there, what can we do better tomorrow than we did today? What can we do better today than we did yesterday? How can I be a better wife to you? How can, how can you be a better husband for me? How can I do better at asking for what I want? Or how can I do better at giving you what you need so that you can give me what I want? Um, all these questions that a lot of people really never ask themselves, you know? Um, what, what, how do we want to, our marriage to impact the world? Like, there are a lot of people that I met on this journey who their marriage started out as something that was selfish in that they got married because they wanted companionship or they wanted affection. They wanted um, they wanted what the society had told them that they should want. And then they got married. And as they evolved as a couple, um, suddenly their marriage was had a higher purpose. It was meant for each other, you know, and then beyond that, it was meant for their family. Like their marriage was the the foundation for their family. And then the marriage started to turn into a benefit for their community, you know, and a lot of these people have become mentors and uh, like almost foster parents 
for kids who never had examples. And they're, these couples, their marriage is having an impact that is like spreading throughout their, their city, their town, their state. People are writing articles about them. You know, we have these podcast episodes now that tens of thousands of people have listened to and been inspired by. And I just think your marriage can be for more than just you. It can be for the world and it can inspire people and motivate them to have, if you have a strong marriage, you have a strong, you have a strong family. And if you have a strong family, that's the foundation of a strong community and a strong community is the foundation of a strong like city or state, which can be the foundation of a strong nation, which can be the foundation of a strong world, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It starts on the ground level. Yeah. But just so many people think so small in my, in my opinion, when it comes to the importance of having a happy and fulfilling relationship. Yeah. Well, I think it's changing and I agree. evolving, which is, which is cool and exciting because of because, people like you. Yes. And you, and you know, when we have, when you talk about like our parents love and, um, and like that, that f has formed the basis of what you're describing as mediocre love. I think you're right in that marriage was for, a very long time, a pragmatic business transaction. <laughs> and um, some of it was, you know, founded on romance or love. But at the end of the day, it was a slogging through, you know, there wasn't, um, there wasn't this impetus to challenge yourself or your partner to be better and do better. And that dedication to change and evolution that you're talking about, I agree, is a really important part of extraordinary love. I'm glad you agree. You've done a wonderful job, I think, of creating the vocabulary and content around what it is that you're exploring and describing. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you also started a monthly subscription box business, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did that. So is that still is that still happening? It's, it's still, I sold it last year, okay. uh, it's still in business. Um, it was, uh, an amazing learning experience. Well, first of all, it's called unbox love. Was that the original yeah. name? Yep. That was the original name. Unbox love. Okay. So, and it's like a date in a box kind of a deal. Yeah. The idea was to make it as easy to remove any friction or any potential barriers to a couple having at least one night a month where they can experience something new, do something, spend some like quality time together other than Netflix and chill. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, and most especially, um, couples who have kids and can't really afford a babysitter. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we would curate uh, cool ideas and arts and crafts and games and activities and package them up into a box and send them to people all over the country. And... Uh, They'd open them up and have a cool date night. I like that. Yeah. I, when you're in a relationship for a long time, it can be hard to make space for adventure or spontaneity. Yeah. It's, it's a, a lot of pressure. Way. It is. And, um, I'm always, I'm always looking for inspiration for, I don't know, ways to bring that into my life in a real tangible way that doesn't feel like an overwhelming task. <laughs> right. And that's, um, uh, that's what we found. That's funny because that's actually what we most often hear from men. Mm. Um, the w women, for most most of our w female customers, it was women were excited about the novelty of 
having something to do with their husband and it was like a cute idea and it appealed a lot more to the emotional. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the men, it was like, yeah, I have a really hard time being creative and it's exhausting and I work a full-time job and come home on a Friday night and my wife is like, all right, what are we doing tonight? Yeah. And I just don't know, you know, I just don't have time to plan something like that. And so it was kind of a get out of jail free card for a lot of guys. They were like, you're taking care of the creative part. You're shipping it to my house. <laughs> and all I have to do is like open it up and tell my wife, here we go. Let's do our date night. That's yeah, hilarious. I'll, I'll pay money for that. So That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so I every Friday on the Instagram for the Avowed podcast, I do like uh, favorite wedding Friday and I'll like dedicate the day to a favorite wedding of mine that I found online and hasn't yet been anybody that I know personally but I, it's always people that I feel like I know them because the photos of their wedding are so um, genuine and um, indicative of who they appear to be like they just feel really authentic and uh -huh. Um, have you listened to S Town, the new podcast? Yeah, by... of course. Oh, of so course. good, so, so good, so, so good, so good. So anyway, um, as is my general style, I was like, "Who is this Brian character?" And then I'm like, you know, stalking him online <laughs> and finding out who he is. And it turns out that he married this incredible woman named Solange, and they the photos from their wedding are unbelievable. And they the wedding was featured in Vogue magazine. I guess she works. Oh, wow. she, yeah. She's worked for Vogue in the past and she's, um, she's like a fashion assistant and she does like style shoots and stuff. So anyway, it's in Vogue and I would encourage you to read the article because it was the first time that I've ever read an article or anything about somebody else's wedding that actually like brought me to tears. Wow. I was reading it and I was tearing up. Like it was so, touching and um and all of the details that they had were so intentional and thought out and and not in a like exhaustive thought out kind of way where there is like overthought but just in a really like intimate way like there was just every detail in the wedding felt like it just had something to say about their relationship and who they were but one of my favorite parts is that apparently early on in their relationship he gave her a key and told her to hang on to it all the time, no matter what, just in case. And she did for months. And then she was like, I think on vacation or visiting family or something. And she received a box in the mail and the key that she'd been hanging on to went to the box. And inside was just like all of this awesome stuff with like photographs and poems and like just things that he sent her out of the blue. So this key thing had been like a part of their relationship early on. And then later on, he gave her another key and asked her to do the same thing. And she was like, oh, sweet. I'm going to get another box full of rad stuff. <laughs> and uh, and then she lost the key two days after he gave it to her. And she was like panicking. And he managed to get another key made and gave it to her. And then, you know, she held on to it. I think she had affixed it to her bra and, um, and held on to it for like another six months or something. And then... Um, right before Christmas, he gave her an early Christmas present and it was a box that the second key went to. And inside were, was like a wedding ring and all of these plans for three wedding rings because wow. he wasn't sure which style she was going to want. And he had designed it with a friend of theirs and was like, I had a mock-up made, but if you don't like it, here's the other styles we designed. And it was, it just was such an incredible through thread for their relationship. And also 
I feel like such a wonderful example of how something as small as like giving someone a key without knowing exactly what the intention is going to be in the long run, right? Just knowing that like somewhere down the line, you're going to give them the box that that key goes to and you're not sure what you're going to put in it yet, but it's going to be awesome. Like I just, I thought that that was so beautiful and specific to their relationship and, um, and I was just like, man, I want to do more things like that in my relationship. That's very cool. Yeah. It, I was, I was like tearing up and it was pretty moving. And they, and so then like all of their escort cards had these skeleton keys on it, which was a reference to that. And, oh, that's adorable. Yeah. It really, it truly was. And you should absolutely read the article. <laughs> awesome. I'll check that out. Totally blown away by it. Um, so being that you are very recently married, what was your experience in that wedding planning process? Oh, that's an interesting question. Our wedding was, um, we decided really early on that we wanted it to be a not super stressful process. We wanted the focus to, we want, I mean, we wanted to celebrate our coming together, but we didn't want our focus, the focus on the event of our wedding day to overshadow the importance of our marriage as a whole. So we had a really beautiful wedding day, but it was also pretty simple. We had a really small ceremony and a really big party afterward. We, between the, t- the time we kind of met and started dating and the time we got married was almost exactly one year. So we didn't, wow. we probably, we probably planned the wedding in about th- three or four months. Wow. Um, yeah, which is crazy for a lot of people, but here in Utah, it is not crazy at all. Yeah, I'm sure that's fairly yeah. commonplace in it's, Utah. <laughs> the, the cultural difference is, um, it's yeah, it's very not not it's very common. So I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, um, I think a lot of men, pardon the phrase, but like sort of divorce themselves from the wedding planning yeah. situation because um, culturally we've given men a pass and also we've given women carte blanche to act like crazy people and do whatever it is that they want. Um, That's a fair, I think, generalization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I, you know, obviously, yes, you're right. It is a generalization, but but it's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty fair. So um, being that, you know, your job or, you know, this work that you're doing with love you mentory is about love and that you are steeped in love. I'm curious if you, felt more ownership over that wedding planning process and more enjoyment in that than you think you would have felt otherwise. Yeah, there were some things that were really important to me and other things that weren't. The things that were important to me, I'm lucky to have an amazing wife who was happy to kind of indulge me a little bit and allow me to participate in that planning because I know a lot of people who their wives have had this idea of what their wedding is going to look like in their heads and it was just that was what they were doing. Um, so an example is for me, having a live band was a really big deal. I, I love dancing. I've been swing dancing since college. Um, I just think it's, it's something that's like a huge part of who I am as a person. And so we had a live jazz band come and play and I got to pick them and, um, it ended up being a, we had a dance floor and we had my dancing friends come and they filled the dance floor and, people sat and watched and it was like real dancing. It wasn't just like the YMCA and the electric slide dancing. It was like people who really knew how to dance, shaking it out and having fun. And it made it comfortable for everybody else to have fun and dance to the live music. And that was a big deal for me. Um, little things that weren't important to me were like, what food are we going to eat? Or, um, 
I don't know, like what order are people going to speak at at our luncheon? Um, <laughs> like those are things that I just said, you know what? It's important to me that this person says something. I don't care where in the schedule they say something, you know, yeah. I want my dad. I want my dad to say something. And if it's your dad first or my dad first, it doesn't matter. Um, so the little, little things that we, we really try to make a concerted effort to not get caught up in the color of the napkins or, um, or the specific side dishes that we had at our dinner. We obviously chose them, but we didn't stress over them. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is to incite more conversation between couples who are planning their weddings so that both partners feel like they can have a voice in that planning process because I don't think it's that men by and large don't care about what their wedding looks like or feels like. I think, um, you know, what you're talking about where there's a lot of like just culturally we've um, afforded women this like, you know, fantasy day where it's like people you hear it all the time where it's like, it's your day. It's my day, which is so (laughs) crazy. Um, It's actually, you know, both of your day and also your families and everybody else that you've invited and like nobody owns a day. There are all these people here to celebrate you and it's not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, in that assumption or in that um, award that we've given women to, to behave that way or to have that, uh, we've like given the other partner um, the shaft, really, yeah. <laughs> because you should be able to, you know, have a voice in that planning experience. And I love that, you know, you wanted the swing band, you wanted the jazz, and like she was like, "Yeah, let's do the, let's do it." <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The other thing that was really cool is I wanted to have a lot of groomsmen. I have a, a handful of dudes that are really important to me that have been my friends my entire life and they're and some of them more more recently obviously but like I wanted these guys to be a part of my wedding it was my the most the biggest day of my life and when she heard that I wanted to have like seven or eight groomsmen she was like okay I'll just find seven or eight bridesmaids (laughs) no big deal and so we've got these pictures with this wedding party that's just enormous um and she was just happy to oblige and and like make sure that there was space for everybody that I love to be a participant in this day. So I, yeah, she was super easy to work with. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Yeah. At that point, the, there is an element to it that is like, it is a coworker, <laughs> right? Like yeah. the, the wedding planning, especially um, moving into like, you're, you're planning an entire event. And at some point you just have to be like, uh, thank you for putting in the work today. I really exactly. appreciate you compromising and working with me on this effort. <laughs> we actually used this really fun technique to compromise. Um, when we ever bumped into something that we were making a decision about and both of us had an opinion, we would rate on a scale from one to 10, how important to us and the higher person would get their way. Mm. So for me, for me, like, uh, the, the band was like a nine out of 10 and for her, it was like a four. The music was like a four out of 10. So I got to decide the band, but for her, like the venue was more important. And so she got to pick the venue and, um, the dinner was like mediocre, important to both of us. And so it was really easy to decide on, but there were some things that were just one thing that was really important to both of us was a photographer. We Mm -hmm. both really, really wanted to invest. If we were going to spend money on anything, it was going to be a photographer because we wanted to capture those memories. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just, Whenever we came up against a roadblock, the easy thing was to step back and go, okay, on a scale from one to 10, how important is this to you? 
And she'd be like, uh, seven. And I'm like, okay, for me, it's a three. So you're getting your way. And she'd be like, but, oh, that was easy. <laughs> great. Let's just do it. I like so, that. That's smart. Yeah. It's a great way to navigate some otherwise tricky waters. Yeah, it was really helpful. As long as you're honest about the rating system. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you say five and then afterwards you're like, well, but I really I meant, meant eight. Nine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just I was just holding my cards to see what you were gonna say. Uh, that to me seems like a red flag in a relationship. <laughs> if yeah. You can't be honest in your rating system, and you can't always have a ten. Yeah, have, right. Yeah, and then it's like it's uh, I'm not taking anything you say seriously at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for taking some time to listen and support the Avowed Podcast. As always, I have an accompanying blog post waiting for you on my Real Talk blog at jasminrlily.com. And if you aren't already following Avowed Podcast on Instagram, get your cute butt over there for a whole slew of Avowed goodies. Now, get out of here and go find yourself some extraordinary love. 